0: If you'll take your Bibles, please, and uh, join me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. With the body, you will live. Father, thank you again for your word. and May you help us understand it. And more importantly, may it be applied to our life. For those who have yet to come to the Lord Jesus, may they see that they are in bondage to the flesh, minding the things of the flesh. And Lord, for the Christian, may they be encouraged to see that they do mind the things of the Spirit, but yet the flesh is very real and continues to fight. And so, Lord, we thank you again, and so may you help us. We are a needy people, and we are so grateful that your spirit has been promised to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're back in our Romans chapter 8. We have, uh, we've had one stop. We're going to have numerous, Lord willing, there'll be numerous stops in uh, Romans chapter 8. It is indeed the, uh, um, the substance of Romans. Romans chapter 8, you can look at it uh, From the standpoint of his practical theology, it is designed uh, to teach us how to live our justification in Romans 5, as well as our union in Romans 6, with the reality of Romans 7 ever before us on a daily basis. So, Romans chapter 8 then becomes uh, one of the most prized chapters in all of Scripture, and the theme of Romans chapter 8, there's multiple, but the main theme of Romans chapter 8 is assurance. Assurance. And every Christian uh, longs for a full assurance. A full assurance of faith, a full assurance of salvation. And it is the right, and it is what Christ has bought for us, a full assurance. And so as we went through in our first, uh, our first look at Romans chapter 8... We identified seven of the riches that are found within this book. Seven treasures, so to speak, uh, that help us to understand assurance. The first was in verses 1 through 4, our position in Christ. Our position in Christ assures of, our, of us of our standing in Christ, which is no condemnation. And then we're going to look at the empowering presence of the Spirit. That will cover verses 5 through 13 with multiple stopovers in this section. Romans chapter, I mean, the next uh, treasure chest of uh, assurance is our adoption. It's found in verses 14 through 17, and we do want to spend a little bit of time understanding what it means to be a child of God, and the assurance that we can obtain by uh, understanding adoption into his forever family. Verses 18 through 25 is the spirit produced thirst for glorification. One of the signs of assurance, and one of the strong evidences of assurance is a longing to be relieved from this body of sin that still remains within us. Then we have the Spirit's intercession in verses 26 through 27. The golden chain of redemption in verses 28 through 30. And the sacrificial and keeping love of God, verses 31 through 39. Now I said that, and I said that quickly, not that you would remember it, but just so that you would know that there is a, there is a, 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 a plethora of things in this chapter that will teach you and help you with your assurance. It is one of the greatest chapters if you want to be assured of your salvation and of your pre- and of His presence in your life. Um, If you're not a Christian, it will also be one of those chapters that will show you that you're not. And thus, that by the time that we work our way through this, even maybe today, that you would be a Christian, that you would embrace the Lord Jesus. Now, we're finding ourselves in in verses, uh, I read, 5 through 13. That is the second section of the treasure chest of God's uh, gifts to us of assurance, the empowering presence of the Spirit. The empowering presence of the Spirit. This is the substance of chapter 8. This is the one, as I told you, chapter 8 in its whole is a practical application of the theology in in chapters 5, 6, and 7. What you have in the middle of chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, you have the Spirit's presence And the Spirit's power enabling you to live the justified life. It is the very application of those doctrines. But what also is very clear in this section, verses 5 through 13, is the contrast. There is a contrast between the unbeliever and the believer. There is the unbeliever who is enslaved and lives according to the flesh... And there is the believer who lives according to the Spirit, howbeit not without the struggles of Romans 7. And so then we'll see that there are there are clear, there are clear distinctions in this, in this, um, uh, this chapter in regards, in this section, verses 5 through 13, in living out the Christian life. Now, as I told you before, and it's important to remember this, is that Romans, Romans uh, is Paul's most logical of all of his letters. It, was the, it is the, uh, the one that has very sound reasoning, as he would reason all in the first uh, four or five chapters. He would reason with the Jew and Gentile alike concerning sin, concerning uh, total depravity. And so when you come to chapter 8, he does the same thing. It's very logical. And when I say logical, is that he places a strong emphasis on the mind, on the mind. And I wonder if we really understand, and the the temptation as you go through this, you see how many times Paul would refer to the mind or our thinking pattern. The The temptation is to go off and just do a series on the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Because I'm not sure that we understand to the extent, and I say that from my perspective, is how much our thinking determines the quality of our Christian life. As you think, so you live. Solomon would tell us that in, in uh, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. The mind will appear in this section five times in ESV. It will appear four times and once implied in the NAS. It will also appear four times in And one time implied in the King James. So the mind dominates through this section. And if we don't understand the place of thinking and the place of the mind in the Christian life, we're not going to understand what he's saying. And so I just want us to to establish that. I'm not going to go off on a series. We're not going to do that. We've been known to do that stuff and never come back to where we we were. So uh, what we're going to do is I want to give you four reasons why the mind is critical to the Christian life and it also um, I'll add a fifth one in the in the front now is this we live in such a mindless culture we live in a culture that does not promote deep thinking it does not I mean just look at the look at the political arena not for very long please it is absolute mindless it is emotional. It is there is no reasoning. There is no civility in the conversation. It is mindless, and we live. In, and we look around at the debauchery that is that has gripped the nation in the last fifty years. The immorality. It is mindless obedience to the flesh. There is absolutely no hard thinking being done, and the ch- Christian has not been immune to that. If I was to stand at the end of the door, and as you all walk out, and no one is allowed to avoid me, I would ask you, tell me the last Christian book you read that wasn't about a how-to. When is the last book you read on the person of Jesus Christ? When is the last book you read on uh, applying justification? When is the last Christian book that you read that challenged your thinking? How many of you would look for the exit the other way? And I don't say that to indict you. And, and, and I've had Christians tell me that, uh, well, I'm, I'm just not much of a reader. And I just kind of sit back and I, I say, God gave us a book. Reading's a big deal to God, a very big deal. And so re- the reading Christian will be the knowing Christian. And the knowing Christian should lead to the doing Christian. And the doing Christian will be the one that leaves a mark in culture. And so when you come to the mindlessness of of Christianity, Paul would would really, like a cold washcloth to the face in chapter 8, 5 through 13, is that the mind plays a a vital part. And here's, here's four reasons why we must understand the mind in the Christian experience. Number one, the mind is included in the great commandment. The mind is included in the great commandment. Think about that. Is that if, I was, if I was to, I look at Joy, you know, today is our 40th anniversary. Yeah, and she got the Perseverance Award today. And so, wouldn't it seem odd, I mean, to us in our human, but apart from being a Christian, if I look to her and say, you know, Joy, I love you with all my mind. What if you went out in the world and you said, "Now, how many, how many uh, greeting cards? If you go out there, I, I just love you, sweetie, with all my mind." Yeah. It, it isn't out there, isn't it? why? Because. The word, I should say, love, has been hijacked by our world to mean more of an infatuation or a lust, and it's conditional to where if you don't serve me or do this, then I just don't love you. It's like that person, uh, the girlfriend, they were, she was going to break up with her, with her boyfriend, and he had a picture of her, had it, says, uh, uh, said, well, oh, I want my picture back, and uh, and then uh, in the back of it, it said, said, I will love you always. If we break up, I want my picture back. I mean, that's really what we live in a world. We live in a world that does not know what love is. And the mind is critical in loving. In the, new, in the great commandment, Jesus would tell this to the lawyer, Matthew twenty two thirty six 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that includes with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? And it's important that we establish this because that's what Paul is going to refer to. The mind is the seat of understanding. It is the seat of understanding. It's the seat of even emotions and desire. It feeds that. When you see the heart, the heart in, in that text here, and you see the soul, and you see the mind... Craig Traxel has wrote a wonderful book on this. And he says that when you see those three things, don't think that it's compartmentalized. It encompasses the whole of our being. Traxel would say this. The point is not that the heart, soul, and mind represent separate entities of our inner nature. To the contrary, they overlap and harmonize. Whenever we find the word heart in Scripture we should first understand it is a comprehensive term that captures the totality and unity of our inner nature to include our mind and to include our affections and to include our will. And they're they're interchangeable. So when Jesus is saying our mind, he's not thinking you just have Christian thoughts. That's not what he's saying. That to love someone with our mind isn't just I'm going to have good thoughts about you. John Owen would say this, expanding to the heart to include the mind. He would say that the faculties of man's spiritual life and the one principle of our moral operations is the heart or the mind. And so if you don't know how to think, you say, well, I think all the time. But my question is, is your thinking worldly and is it shallow or is your thinking disciplined and is it spiritual? And that can only come by the discipline of programming your mind and your heart by the source that God has given us in order to think right, and that is his book. And if you're a Christian, and I'm not saying you've got to spend three hours a day reading. We've got noble callings. Some of you have got noble callings. You know, as, as home educators and as, and as teachers as, and as moms and there's noble callings, I got that. You may not be able to read for two hours a day. But I bet you can read for 15 or, or a half hour. you waste a lot of time. Hey, don't, don't take the word betting that I'm a betting man. I'm not, okay? Uh, but the reality is, uh, uh, beloved, you've got to be able to read. Because your mind has to be renewed by the only source that's going to keep you from falling prey to the world and backsliding. And that is his book. So you have to be a reader. You have to be. Now, that would include audio books. I think those are good. Uh, but make sure that you are that. So the first reason why, uh, though, we need to be, uh, have our minds engaged, as Paul would have, is because we can't obey the reason why we exist, and that is to love God unless our mind is engaged. You have to use your mind when it comes to, to loving God. The second reason why the mind must be understood in the Christian life is because of the predominance of the mind in the New Testament. So Paul would extensively use the mind in Romans. He's not the only one. Is it do a study? Do a study of uh, of the mind in the Scripture, and you're going to find that it appears uh, not just in Pauline epistles, but Peter has much to say about the mind as well. When Peter fell in the uh, temptation, when he fell in the in the temptation with the little girl, uh, I would argue that his mind went south. Is that he did not? He was not watching, and to be watchful requires a mind that is educated, that is renewed, that is on guard. And Peter would tell us this very thing: uh, that we are to we are to have our minds set on the second coming of Christ, to be sober minded, to be serious, because life is serious, and life is serious because you only get to do it once. You only get to do it once. And if our purpose is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we probably need to figure out how to do that before it's over. And Paul uses the mind, as I said, extensively in his. So that's the second reason why we must um, um, see the use of the mind in this text, because of the predominance of the mind in the Christian experience. Thirdly, and I kind of alluded to this already, is that Paul, in in writing section 5 through 13, if we're going to understand what Paul's saying, we need to understand what the mind, how the mind functions in this section. And he says that those who would mind the things of the flesh and those who would mind the things of the spirit. So there is two applications for this. Paul was telling us in verses 5 through 8, which we're covering today, he's telling us that the mind is the controlling and determining factor of whether you're a believer or not. That you can determine whether you're a believer or not, by what controls your mind? by what, you, what, what is your first thought in the morning? How often do you fix your thoughts on the things of God throughout the day? A believer will do that. The unbeliever will not, has no desire to. And so you can quickly determine. Now, you can be a believer and not fix your, your mind on the things of God. You can I would, I, would, I would argue that if that is you, you're probably stressed out, you probably have no joy, you have no peace, and that you are struggling to maintain any joy in your Christian experience. And why? Because it begins in how you think. It depends on, on the mind. And so Paul would emphasize this so much that he would tell us that the controlling and determining factor, whether or not you're a believer or unbeliever, will be in the mind. But in verses 5 and verses 6, as we're looking at that text now, Romans 8, 5 through 8, but 5 and 6, you're going to see that there is a distinct difference in the use of the mind here. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, as I mentioned, there's a contrast here. This pattern that Paul uses in contrast is not unlike the pattern that John uses in his first epistle. The first epistle, he would use a lot of if-then. says, if you say, uh, but you don't do, then this. So there's contrast throughout 1 John that will give you assurance as well. Well, here we have in verse 5, he says, For those who according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay? Then the contrast. But those who according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now here's the distinction. In verse 5, the mind is fixed. The mind is fixed by the corrupt nature of still being an Adam. The mind, in verse 6, is fixed on the spirit, but not not immune to the attacks of the Adamic nature. In verse 5, no human being can change. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no ability to change your thinking from the things of the flesh. None. You're enslaved to that. You are constantly doing that. All you do is flesh. And by the way, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we know that there's three foes. There's the devil, there's the world, and there's the flesh. Your greatest foe is the flesh. Is the flesh. And your flesh is exploited by the devil. And your flesh is exploited by the world. And the goal of the devil and the goal of the world is really, in simplicity, one thing. Is to get your mind off Christ. Looking unto Jesus. Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus. That looking is a fixed gaze. And obviously it isn't literal. So it has to include the mind. And by faith. And if you take your eyes off Jesus. As a Christian. You are going to find yourself. Falling numerous times. To the sins of the flesh. It's always that way. It is that way. So in verse 5. Paul is distinguishing. That the unbeliever. The mind is set. That word set, it means to to, to be fixed upon. But he's saying for the unbeliever, and he's already established this in chapter 5. Chapter 5 and chapter 8 are are linked together. In chapter 5, he talks about being in Adam. In Adam, you can't change that. By nature, you can't change your nature. If you're in Adam, your mind is set, is fixed upon everything corrupt, and you can do nothing good in the sight of God. Nothing. In verse 6, where he would say, um, well, "At the end of verse 5 plus end of verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. You see the contrast on a consequence. And we'll talk about that later. All I want you to understand here is that the difference between a mind that's set on the flesh, you can't change. A mind that's set on the spirit, you have the power not to be enslaved to the flesh. You don't have to do that. In verse, uh, remember chapter seven. Just go back a a couple of uh, to verse uh, twenty-three through twenty-five in chapter seven. And what does Paul say? He says the very same thing he's saying here, just in different words. For I delight in the inner law of God in my inner being. That would be the things of the spirit. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. The, he says there's a war in the law of my mind with the law of sin. The law of sin would be the law of flesh. The law of, He says here, waging war the law of my mind, which has been renewed by the Spirit. So he's already acknowledging that there's a war. There is no war with the unbeliever. The unbeliever has no war against the law of sin. The unbeliever is dead in Adam. The unbeliever, if you're not a Christian today, you sin, and you sin all the time. You constantly sin, though you may not be aware, you may not call it sin, but in God's eye, you are nothing but evil continually. And the only possible way that you can get changed is by the new birth, whereas the spirit of the law now comes in and transforms you. So here's a third reason why we need to see the importance of the mind because the Spirit has placed within us the importance of the mind in regards to living the Christian life. Is that there's a war going on, and where does that war occur? That war occurs in your mind. He says, there's the law of, the mind. There's the law of sin, and there's the law of God is warring in my mind. I'll say this numerous times, but it's so important. How you think will determine how you live. And you may not be so, think you're so worldly that you're not going out and do this. But if you are, are are spending more time in the things of the world than you are the things of the word, your mind is being uh, being transformed by the word, uh, by the world. I'm sorry, you can't help it. Your mind will always be shaped by the influences you expose it to, and thus the need, as Paul would say, uh, for the mind uh, to be engaged. Okay, so the, here's a fourth reason why the mind is so critical in the Christian life. Now, I want to get back to this reason. I don't want anybody feeling guilty because uh, they don't read. Well, actually, I do want you to feel a little guilty. Uh, But I want you to understand, you must develop the discipline of reading. Uh, It's so important. It's so important. All right, here's a final reason to... um, to emphasize the mind in our thinking towards the Christian life. And this is a contemporary application. I already talked briefly about that, but I want want to read um, a little excerpt from a book that was written in 1963. Um, It's as relevant as if it was printed today by an Englishman named Harry Blemers. It's it's become a classic. It's called The Christian Mind. And, And this is what Blemers would say. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of a non-Christian. We would agree. As a member of the church, he understands obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. Sounds good. As a spiritual being in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. Again, we all would would agree with that. But, please pay attention to this. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. This is 1963. He accepts religion. It's morality, it's worship, it's spiritual culture. But he rejects the religious view of life the view which sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal. The view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. The view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness in terms of heaven and hell. End quote. Now think about your own life just for a minute. Do you interpret everything in life through a spiritual lens of eternity? Do you interpret your job? Do you interpret your roles in your family? Do you interpret um, the political arena? Do you interpret the use of your time? The use of your material resources? Well, would argue, and I believe he's right, because I've seen it in my own life, is there's a tendency to compartmentalize Christianity to where it fits into this, and it fits into this, but then I've got this other part of my life. There is no duality in this. And the only way to have that is a renewed mind that shows us that this life here is really for one purpose and one purpose only. It is to prepare for the next life. And the only way that you can have that is to have the mind, as Paul would tell us, that is set on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. And here's the challenge for the Christian. As we look through this, we spend weeks looking at this, here's the challenge for the Christian. Is that there are things of the flesh. There are things of the flesh that are not bad. Now, he's talking about corrupt flesh here, but I'm talking about, when I say flesh, I'm talking about, in in the context here before we look at this, I'm talking about there are things in life that are not sinful that you may find yourself committing to and doing that may not be the best things to do. Is you can commit to good things, but yet you may be sacrificing the best things. And the problem could very well be is you and I are not interpreting all of life through the lens of what Plemers would say, the eternal and the spiritual. Now, I'm not talking become uh, a monk and be monastic and move to the hill. I'm not talking about that. That's not what I'm talking about. It would sound great to get some books and just go somewhere and, and never come down. But what I'm talking about, are you and I infiltrating the culture Seeing that salt in life that we are to be as the church, it's only going to happen when we see everything through the lens of pending judgment and eternity. And so the mind that is set on the Spirit will see those things. And we're going to look and do some, uh, some really soul-searching in this text here because that's what Paul would have us to do. We need to understand what does it mean to set our mind on the things of the Spirit? And what are the things of the Spirit? And how do I get there? But now let's take a look at the contrast itself. Now as we look at this contrast between the unbeliever and the believer, we're only going to do the believer today. We're only going to look at the believer, the one that in verse 5 and 6 is set on the flesh. You say, well, I'm a believer. Well, you know what this does? It kind of gives us a heart check. It gives us a heart check is that we can see how Paul would say this of the, of the unbeliever. We can look at it in our own life and it can actually give us an assurance because that's what this chapter is about. It can give us assurance and you can look in your life and say, I was that. I was that. I'm not that. I may not be fully uh, understanding to have my mind set on things of the Spirit, but I know I want to and I know I'm going to strive to. So this can be a source of assurance for you as we work our way through this uh, uh, this this attitude or this... Uh, condition of the unbeliever and the flesh. Okay, verse five. Here's the first thing for the unbeliever. And if you're here today and you find that the unbeliever, that you might be more characterized by the, by the fleshly type of lifestyle, uh, then thank God that he's put you in a place today even where you can hear the gospel and you can go from being a slave to the things of the flesh to now having the power to live under the things of the Spirit. All right, verse 5 through 8, we'll read that again. For those who live according or after the flesh, who set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in those verses there, do you see that the primary emphasis that he's making is on the life in the flesh he only mentions the spirit a couple of times and he doesn't even define it all he says is that those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit he didn't tell us what those are and then he would say the mind set on the spirit is life and peace so he would show, show the contrast between the the spirit life is one that is vital or i would even say abundant life life and peace whereas the flesh is death so he would have us to understand what these people these romans were they were in the, in the flesh, and there's probably still some there. And so he's preaching not only to the church, but he's teaching, uh, preaching evangelistically as he would have wrote this letter and, and give this message. Now, the first thing we need to define is what is the flesh? What is the flesh? What is he, what is he, uh, uh, what is he referring to? Well, it's not that muscles. It's not the sinew. It's not the body. It's not, it's not that. He's used that before, and the Bible will use that, but it's not that. He's referring to the fallen nature. He's referring to the fallen nature that is corrupted, that is directed, and get this, that is controlled by sin. Controlled by sin, by nature. Psalm 51, five, David would say, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. One of the things that, that plagues the modern evangelical church today is there's way too many people that don't believe in total depravity. We're not partially broke. We don't have within us the power or or the will, if uh, if that's another word for it. We don't have it within us to be free of this enslaved, endemic nature. In fact, we are enemies to God with no desire for reconciliation. That's what makes the gospel so wonderful is because God has done for us what we could not do or want to do ourselves. He would go on to say that um, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would say, he would say, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the flesh. That's the person uh, in that endemic nature still. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived... That is what he referred to in Romans 8:5. Live according to the flesh. Who once lived in the passions of our fallen nature, carrying out the desires of the body against it, and the mind. Remember, what I told you early: how you think determines how you live. And if you are in Adam, If you've not been released from that and given the new nature by new birth, if you're not, then your mind is always going to direct you to do things that are anti-God, that are completely sinful, and you'll never do anything but. Now, you may say, well, I do good things. Yes, you do do good things. And there are a lot of good human beings. But the problem is, is the dictionary is good is horizontal. It's not vertical. And God's definition of good is absolute perfect um, obedience inside and out to my moral law without failure. That's what good is. And no one can do that. And so Paul would say that if you're an unbeliever, no matter what you may think of yourself, that you're somewhat good and that I haven't committed immorality and I haven't done this. No, you are totally depraved. You have no ability to free yourself. You're under the condemnation of God. There is no hope for you outside of you embracing Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can't embrace him by yourself. And that humbles the sinner which is the whole essence of the gospel, is to humble the sinner to where he he or she looks up to God and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a dog, but I'll eat the crumbs off of the table. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. So we go back to Romans chapter 8, and we see in verse 5, we see that Paul says, it's you who are dead in Adam. It's you who have no ability whatsoever Why you do what you do is because you think this way. You live according to the flesh because your mind is set on the things of the flesh. And it always defaults to that. You can never change the compass. It's always defaulting to that. Well, And that brings us into the second point, verse 5. He makes a distinction here between conduct and thinking. For those who live, that's conduct or walk. According to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, the word "set" in some uh, in the in original in the original is not there. It, it means to have a a um, uh, a bent towards or an orientation towards. It's thought patterns that lead to actions, and they're all consuming. When um, in the navy, whenever we have special details or something. We actually use the word set. For instance, uh, we'll get ready to go underway. We're leaving the pier. And uh, they'll pass over the ship's general uh, uh, loudspeaker. Now set the special sea and anchor detail. That goes throughout the ship. So what does that mean? It means everybody's orientation, everybody's bent is towards getting the ship off of the pier. And there's not a department on the ship that is not involved in that. Everybody is committed to that. So when Paul says set the, uh, they set their flesh, their whole being, every bit of them, their mind is functioning towards that, and their mind will determine what they do, and all they do is the corrupt things that's anti-God. When we're at sea, and we're steaming along, and every three days you, you have to get gas. you got to pull alongside the oiler to get gas. And so we'll get ready for that, and we're out there doing our mission. And then we know that, uh, say, at noon, we're going to refuel. So maybe 10, 11 o'clock, we'll start heading towards the oiler, and we get close, and they'll pass the word over the, loud sh- the ship's loudspeaker. Now set the at-sea refueling detail. That's what our mission is right now. I was on anti-air warfare ships. I was on anti-submarine warfare ships. Uh, you know, those, mission- those missions become secondary because we have one thing we got to get gas. And so we set the refueling detail, and everybody, every department is fixed on that. And we come alongside, and we throw the fuel lines over. Next thing you know, we can't do anything. We can't move. We're, we're just trugging along, getting gas. That's what Paul is saying, that the unbeliever, they have set in their mind by nature that all they can do is things that are anti-God. That's why it is an abomination to God to think that you can be religious enough to qualify you for heaven. It is absolutely an abomination. It is blasphemy to think that a human being can earn favor with God in the strength of self because you have no capacity to do so. And what it does, it absolutely cheapens the gospel. And for a person, a human being, and how many people have you talked to about the gospel? And they've used the excuse, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. You know, I've done a lot of good things, and when I get there, I'm just hoping, you know, the the good outweighs the bad. You know, and they'll talk talk lightly about that. There is no scales. No, your determination of whether heaven is your eternal home is now and it's determined by whether you are in the flesh or in the spirit. And if you're in the flesh, then your mind is set on doing nothing but brings dishonor to the living God. And you can't do anything else. And the person says, "Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not as bad as that person. There's that, that's out there too or they'll find some 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 Evil human monster from history. So I wasn't. I'm not nearly as bad as that person. Well, well yeah, you are. You are. We are. And so it becomes a very a, a, a very challenging thing with us in, in, in modern evangelicalism. Is we can't get to the glories of the gospel till we get to the ugliness of depravity. Unless you see that, that you are destined to a condemnation, you are destined to a separation because you live in the flesh, you never run to Christ. And you'll think God will grade you on a curve, that he'll let you in because he's a God of love. Oh, he will let you in because he's a God of love. But don't forget the first little word before love. He is a God of holy love. And holiness demands that the breach is fixed. So that is the flesh. Now the second part there, as I mentioned, we, we refer to it. Live according to the flesh. That is the conduct. Set their mind. That is the internal. In Galatians chapter 5, 19-21, we read, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Works are seen. Sexual immorality, impurity. Now th- think about 21st century America as I read this. Sexual immorality... Impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Now, idolatry. Don't excuse me. Don't think idolatry is you got these 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 images on your fireplace or something. It's not the little plastic thing on your on your dash. This idolatry is anything that you value and put ahead of God. That's idolatry. It could be your family. Your family could be an idol. Um, it could be materialism. Whatever. The list is long. Is it? Um, We are all, at one time, idolaters. And even as Christians, we got to be careful that we don't become idolaters again. But he goes on. He says, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, these are the works. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do or live according to the flesh... And living according to the flesh, where did it originate? In the mind. In the mind. When I read this about strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, sadly I thought of Congress. I thought of our political arena. And it's so true. It used to be that opponents could have a civil conversation. It used to be, I did a wedding, um, um, it was uh, up in the northern part of the state, one of our, one of our uh, individuals that played church ball, and uh, he professed to be a Christian, and, uh, you know, and uh, we, uh, they wanted me to officiate because of the relationship. And our, our, our criteria is that if you want that to happen, one, you've got to go through eight, nine weeks of premarital counseling. And if you're not uh, in a church, you're not in a church, or you're not, uh, um, um, you're not uh, of that religion, then you've got to come here for the whole time during the counseling. That was pretty, that's a pretty tall order. And, uh, and to my surprise, they agreed, and so they came, and they were here, and we developed that, and, you know, and so we did the wedding, and um, we were at the reception, and Joy and I were uh, seated at the reception. We didn't know anybody, didn't know anybody, and there was this older gentleman. He had, um, he had lived in Greece, and he had endured persecution uh, as, as a Christian, and he'd come to the United States. And he walked over there, and Joy and I had our own table, you know, and I thought it was, we were special. It was right beside the kitchen, <laughs> and we're there, and the servers are going back and forth. I mean, we're, just, we're right there in the kitchen, and so, but anyway, this gentleman came over, and uh, he, he, he said, listen, God, I want to thank you for the service. He says, uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of unbelievers here, and I'm thinking, wow, this is refreshing. And, uh, and he says, I just want to thank you that it was a Christ-centered ceremony. because I so appreciate that. And uh, he says our world needs to hear more of that. And I said, I said yes, sir. And uh, he says, you know, and he says, I'm. And he goes, he told me a story how he migrated from Greece because of persecution. He started a business, owned a pizza place, made a lot of money. And uh, he was saying, yes, he says, you know what? In our, in our country, he says, I become a said, our country. He said, our country is in such a state, a political division. He says, I'm a Democrat. And uh, and. Before, I, I wasn't going to say anything, and we just talked about it. He says, but I'm not one of those Democrats. I said, what do you mean? He says, I'm not a Democrat like today. He goes, I'm an old Democrat. He says, I could, I could disagree with, 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 with the other side, and we could disagree and be friends, and we could disagree and we could have a civil conversation. There was mutual respect. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, the works of the flesh whether it be in, in, in political arena, whether it be in a church, whether it be in your family, the work of the flesh is this, division, envy, anger, jealousy, strife. And friends, that's what the, the person living in the flesh does. Now, a Christian may struggle with this, but if you're a Christian and these are normal patterns of your life, you need to question whether you're a Christian. Because you can't have, you can't have a continual pattern of, Of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, strife, anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, and the likes. And so Paul wants us to understand that if you're in the spirit, those patterns have been broken. The pattern has been broken. And you can't say, well, I'm just that way. I had a Christian tell me, yeah, I struggle with anger, but that's just the way I am. I said no it's not I said the, the gospel breaks those and if you give yourself a pass then you need to ask the question am I still in the flesh and if you're still in the flesh that means you're not in the spirit and this is how God has made it so simple for us you either in Adam or you're in Christ you either in the flesh or you're in the spirit there is no, no neutrality on this And so what what we're seeing here is that Paul would tell us that this working of the flesh, it has an outward manifestation, but it comes internally from the mind that is fixed or oriented on the things of the flesh. And as the mind ponders those over, they become enslavements to life. Where uh, Where do you think pornography gets its hold? And pornography is a, one of the greatest evils in our culture. Where does does it start? Job says, I have made a covenant not to look at a maid with my eyes. And it's not just men. In the eyes, in the mind, in the heart, in the will. And that's how the Christian life is lived. Mind, heart, will. We'll see that later on in in Romans chapter 8. Well, the same thing with the, the sins of the flesh. Eyes, mind, heart, Will, and so Paul was telling us that, that those that are in the flesh, outside of, of the spirit, outside of Christ, you live, and the reason why you live because the mind is set on these very things. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's take a look at six and, and take a look at the uh, what's the consequences of this? What's the consequences of living in the flesh? Well, there are three. Take a look at verse six. For the mind set on the flesh is death very straightforward, death. As we studied earlier in Romans, there are three aspects of death. Obviously, physical death, we're all going to experience that. Uh, spiritual death, that occurs, uh, that occurred with Adam and Eve when they disobeyed. And if you're outside of Jesus Christ today, you're not physically dead, but you are the walking dead. You are spiritually dead. And you may say, well, I do I don't understand spiritual things. I've tried to read my Bible, and I don't understand it. Well, I listen. I come to church. I listen to sermons, but I don't understand it. Well, you shouldn't because the Bible teaches us in uh, 1 Corinthians the natural person does not know the things of God. Unless you are in the spirit, not in the flesh, unless you are in Christ, not in Adam, you can't understand the things of God. And that is still one of the other beautiful workings of God, is the gospel gives us the ability to understand truth because we get new life. Well, the first consequence then, Paul would say, that if you're living in the flesh, you are dead. You're going to suffer physical death. Uh, You are already spiritually dead. And if you die in that state outside of Christ, living in the flesh, you are going to experience eternal death. Eternal death. Or, as the Revelation would tell us, the second death. What else? We'll take a look at um, uh, verse 7. Here's the second consequence of living in the flesh. The mindset on the flesh, which leads to the lifestyle of the flesh, is hostile towards God. Can you imagine that? That's what we were outside of Christ. Romans says we're his enemies. We're his enemies. Imagine having the creator your adversary. Imagine the Creator being hostile in a state of warfare that there'll never be a ceasefire unless you come to His Son. And that even in this life of our hostility with God outside of Christ, we enjoy His common grace. If you're an unbeliever today, you're here and you have health and you uh, you have the blessings of life. From a creator who is your enemy. That is the benevolence of God. That is the amazing grace of God. That pours the rain on the just and the unjust. But there will be a time if you die in the flesh. If you die in the flesh. He will pour out upon you for all eternity. His unbridled wrath. There will be no common grace after death. You will will feel the the full fury of His wrath upon you without any hope of an ending. That's what the person in the flesh will endure. But God praises His name. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ Himself is our peace. He has broken down the wall of hostility. Notice this. You didn't break down the, the wall of hostility. That wall's too high for you to climb. I can't do it. It says Christ came. And when he cries, Eli, Eli, that I, and why have you forsaken me? You know what's happening? The walls are coming down. And thus we can look at God and live in the spirit. Though we struggle still in the flesh, we can live in the spirit. We're not under the bondage of the flesh controlled by the mind. And then finally look at, um, at the verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. Oh, the goodness and kindness of God that He would create us in His image. And He would create us to know Him, to love Him, to adore Him, to behold Him, to be like Him for all eternity. And then the the rupture occurs. Genesis 3. And now man becomes not only his enemy... But man is incapable of any thought towards God that's good. And if the thought isn't good, the action will never be good. Isn't it a sad thought that such a good God that we now have no capacity to please him? None. Genesis 6 5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sadly, that is us outside of Christ. And so what Paul done has, has done massively in verses 5 through 8, he has laid out the contrast. He has laid out the contrast of what it means to be in the flesh, to be an unbeliever. And it's not just the unbeliever. We don't just well, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. No, he's given you more substance to what that means. And the substance is simply this. You live according to everything that is anti-God. And the reason why you live that way is because you think that way. And if you think that way, then you can't help but do that way. It's probably not good English, but it sounded good. Do. So, you have to decide for yourself starting today. Am I driven? And is my life, am I setting my, am I setting my entire faculties, everything about me, am I setting it on the things of the flesh or the things of the world? Remember what Blamir says, the Christian life is not you pick and choose. Sunday morning from 9.30 to 11, that's not your Christian life. That that is a, a culmination of a week of the Christian life coming together with the family to worship. That's what it is. If your Christian life is only the 90 minutes on Sunday, and then you're you're running out and doing the worldly things or driven by the fleshly, you may not even pick up your Bible, and you, you just do whatever you want to do. You know what that is? That is living according to the flesh. And Paul says if you live according to the flesh, despite what you may say, you are subject to death, you are hostile to God, And you have no ability to please him. So, may God help us to see and ask the question. Because it can lead to assurance. It can lead to assurance. As you can say, you know what? No. I struggle with the flesh, but I don't live according to the flesh. There's a difference. And you can find assurance. And then, Lord willing, we'll start looking at what is the mind set on the things of the spirit? What does it look like? What would be the evidence in my life that produces assurance that I truly am in the Spirit? Because Paul would go on to say, if Christ, the Spirit of Christ does not dwell within you, you don't belong to Him. So we need to do a thorough look at that and see just exactly what that means. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for just the simple and the clarity of Your book. That we can know where we are spiritually. That we can read in this wonderful chapter and see whether we're in the flesh or whether we're in the spirit. And, Father, for all of us, may we understand the role the mind plays and that we are programming our thinking with the right, with the right source. And that is your word and good books and Christ-honoring companions. And, that, Father, that we would walk more in the spirit that the world would see the reality of who Christ is. Lord, thank you again for loving us. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping today. And we honor you in Christ's name. Amen.